Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. What's up, Gromies? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. Education. <laughs> I am your moderator, Keisha, and this is episode 74. Welcome. Here's how we do it. I'll keep an eye out for questions in the chat. Drop them anytime. And if your question gets picked, we'll have you either unmute yourself or I can ask for you. We're also going live on YouTube. If you're logging in over there, same idea. Post your questions. And if yours gets picked, we will do our best to cover it during the show. Quick programming note, today's session is going to be 30 minutes today. So don't hesitate. Drop that question in the chat. We'll do our best to get to it. Jason, how are you doing over there? Doing all right. How are you? Good. Good to see you. All right. You ready for our first question? Get her rocking and rolling. Let's get it rocking and rolling. All right. This one came from Leland. He dropped this question a couple of weeks ago. He writes, good day, guys. We are running 1000 kilowatt HPS lights in our rooms and have one cultivar that starts photo bleaching around week six, seven. We implemented some LST early flower to manage the canopy height, but it hasn't made a difference. Could there be something in our irrigation to cause this or is it most likely our lights? Any insight would be great. Cheers. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, he said 1,000 watt HPS. A uh, thousand, yeah, 1,000 kW HPS. Yes. So, um, you know, a couple things obviously with 1,000 watt HPS is we do have quite a bit of heat coming off there. Um, there actually can be quite a bit involved with light bleaching, which does make it harder to diagnose. I mean, obviously, the, the first really easy thing to look at is how much airflow and how high are our plants growing as far as close to those HPSs. Uh, you know, if we've got tall ceilings and you know, we're looking at four or five feet plus, um, typically, you know, with enough airflow, we're not inducing too much actual heat um, that could cause some of that bleaching. Um, thousand watt HPS, very standard for, you know, reasonably high um, light intensity, which is good. One of the things that you know, I've encountered as far as, bleaching goes is you definitely want to make sure that you're getting those plants fed enough and so obviously by looking at root zoning you see you get an idea of how much of the nutrients that you're putting in there are the plants eating uh how much are is the nutrients stacking in the substrate and ironically obviously when we're looking at um bleaching we want to make sure that the plant has enough nutrition to keep all of those chloroplasts as healthy as possible and um Really what happens is when we see light bleaching, um, those chlorophyll are gonna start, you know, either the environment's not right, nutrients are not right, or they're simply getting more light than they can process. And the activity in that chlorophyll starts to go down. And so rather than being green, they're turning white. Um, we actually see this type of coloring in, in lots of plants that can happen. Uh, if we start getting too much light, you're gonna have a little bit less green on the plant. Uh, some plants actually start turning other colors when you get too much light. And ironically, for indoor plants, it sometimes can be a, a preferential trait. Um, so I guess, you know, in your application, you know, one, look at obviously light levels at the canopy, um, heat levels at the canopy, take a look at leaf surface temperature, and definitely analyze nutrient load. Uh, if you're seeing that the plant's eating more nutrients and, you know, we're just not getting enough balanced nutrition uptake in that plant and kick up your nutrition a little bit and see if that doesn't reduce 
how much photo bleaching that you get. And then, I mean, the obvious, you know, starting off with if, if your lights are too close, intensity is too high, you don't have enough CO2 to match your light intensity, then address those things before you can start playing with nutrient. Thank you for that answer, Jason. It actually makes me think about my sad little plant in the backyard. I think she might be getting too much sun. I'm just trying to find anything I can do to save this poor little plant. <laughs> so, well, you. Uh, you know, obviously in an outdoor situation, you know, we're going to be lower on CO2 levels than our ideal. And um, it's pretty common to see 1800 and 2000 PPFD around the sun itself. It's all full spectrum. So you're seeing lots of uh, leaf leaf surface temps increase from the uh, infrared and far red radiation coming out of the sun. Mm -hmm. I also, as you all know, overwatered her in the beginning. Don't judge me. I'm doing my best. <laughs> all right. <laughs> We're going to keep going. Uh, Wyatt Turk just posted an otter flower question. They write, crop steering lines up fairly well with auto veg periods, but not so much with auto gen periods. For example, gen P2 dramatically extended by 18 hour light cycle. Gen P3 dramatically reduced by 18 hour light cycle. Lower gen EC, approximately 1.5. How can we adjust our targets to make autos? Got any thoughts on that? Uh, give me just the last few words again, because we yeah. had that sort of ping in here. Yeah, no problem. So we got uh, gen, P, uh, sorry, gen P2 dramatically extended by 18 hour light cycle. Gen P3 dramatically reduced by 18 hour light cycle. Lower gen EC, approximately 1.5. And they're looking to find out how they can adjust their targets to make the autos steerable. Um, yeah, I'm, I guess I've got a little bit of confusion here in the question. It's just as far as, far as what was increased and decreased in the 18 hour light cycle. Um, um, Gen P2 dramatically extended by 18 hour light cycle. Gen P3 dramatically reduced by 18 hour light cycle. Maybe uh, Wyatt Turp, do we need a little bit more information about what they got going on over there? Um, oh, the actual irrigations were changed by the light cycle. Uh, you know, so typically when we are in an 18 hour light cycle, we're just going to be doing vegetative steering. Um, I mean, I guess maybe if he's an autoflower, he's trying to get as much growth as, as fast as possible. Um, uh, I, I guess one of my first questions would be what's, what's the driving factor of doing an autoflower if you have a controllable light cycle? Um, most applications for production, other than you know, some research applications, you know, auto flowers we're going to be running outside where we don't have control over the light cycle. Um, how can we make them more steerable? <sighs> I think I think there's just too too many unknowns here to give really great advice. Uh, obviously, with an auto flower, usually we're working with a little bit smaller plant. Uh, you most likely have uh, a larger or uncontrolled substrate size. Um, so I think those are factors that we really have to dive into before we can make some good assumptions on, on how to make it more steerable. Appreciate that. All right, Wyatt Terp, if you got a little bit more details about what you got going on over there, please do drop them in the chat. Let's see if we can kind of drill down some more specific advice for you. All right, we're going to keep it moving. Uh, it looks like uh, we've got some action on YouTube. Jeems, just Jeems wrote in, howdy, steering question. I need help understanding whether we want the daily EC target after runoff to increase to increase day to day during generative cycles. 
or if stacking just means letting the EC creep up during the day slash overnight with a larger spike before morning irrigations? Uh, it's going to be both. Uh, and so, you know, when we look at healthy EC levels for, um, you know, a good production canvas plant coming out of veg, usually we want to be at the, you know, three to five, three to six type of range. Um, and I usually consider that to be minimums in the substrate. If, uh, if we want to do some generative stacking, we're definitely going to start to obviously control runoff and have a large um, dryback window, meaning that we're trying to get our irrigations done in one to two hours after our first irrigation. Um, and this is still an irrigation that's getting us up to field capacity or close to field capacity. And then obviously, like I said, if we're controlling our runoff amounts, then we should be able to actually stack that EC. So when we talk about stacking, we are actually talking about the increase in EC nominally from day to day throughout that period. And that's what's basically getting the plant accommodated to a lower osmotic differential. Um, and so that osmotic differential is the salt concentration within the root zone or the roots themselves and the, the plant um, versus the substrate that the, is encompassing the root zone. And really what the whole goal of that sacking is doing is trying to help um, balance or change the plant's hormone into a more reproductive type of chemicals. All right, thank you for that. Jeems, just Jeems. Keep us posted, let us know what's going on over there. All right, Boys Next Door wrote a post asking, they're wondering uh, what the best nutrient line for rock wool is. Got any advice? You know, uh, obviously we, we try to stay fairly agnostic in, in the industry. Um, it's the best, it's hard for me to tell. I, Obviously, there's a good number of nutrient lines out there that I have had a lot of experience with as far as success with our clients. Um, you know, first off, probably would be good old HGV. Um, they've been in the industry a long time. Ron Goldman is just a fantastic guy to work with. Been growing tomatoes in greenhouse industry for three or four decades at least. And um, yeah, be careful if you call him up because he'll talk your ear off, which is awesome. Just you know, incredible amount of knowledge. Um, I think another great nutrient out there, ambrosia crops, um, just a fantastic nutrient line. Um, you know, front row, pretty hard to beat some of their their pricing. Definitely a, a higher quality two-part salts. Um, I think Athena uh, is something that a lot of clients have had a lot of success with, especially moving from liquid nutrients to um, their, one of their pro lines. And then, you know, we've got some newcomers in the industry. I think, you know, advanced nutrients is starting to do a two-part salts. Um, yeah, crop salts out there. There's just, it, it, it's, it's pretty amazing how many different nutrients are available now that are tailored towards cannabis. And really what I, what I recommend is going with something that is popular in the industry and then one that's got enough resources for you to use it properly. Um, one of the things that we've seen probably most prolifically here in the last two or three years is these nutrient companies that might have had historic lines in, in other in, in other crops, uh, other horticulture applications. Uh, if they do get people that are specific for cannabis, a lot of times you'll start to see their nutrient recommendations start to be increased. And a lot of that has to do with in controlled environment. Uh, we're trying to build a plant very quickly. 
Um, so nutrient requirements, uh, obviously, especially when we have CO2 appropriate, light levels appropriate. We are doing some crop steering amounts with heavy feeding genetics. They're usually starving at some of the older recommended levels. Um, so, you know, if you are choosing a line in there, obviously choose one that is right for your application. Um, and the fact that Rockwell, you know, if you're doing a, a small grow, you may not be quite as cost conscientious. If you're at a production level, then, you know, keep in mind what some of the bulk quantity discounts are available from your suppliers. Um, and that's how I would make my decision. Um, as far as the differences in there, there definitely are subtle differences. Um, how those subtle differences represent in the end product that you're growing actually has a lot to do with the strains that you're running. And it's kind of interesting because I'll work with some clients where, you know, they make a change from a nutrient manufacturer to another nutrient manufacturer and they say, hey, my, you know, my strains all started growing a little bit better. Um, and vice versa, maybe on the other side of the U.S. where a different set of strains are our most popularly grown. But we'll see them. We'll see a company switch, you know, vice versa as far as which nutrient company they were, and their stuff improved as well. So a lot of it really comes down to: Are you using your supplier the best? That's a great overview, just for in general regarding nutrients. Thank you for that, Jason. Okay, Max just posted in YouTube. Has combining both generative steering and switching to bloom newts at flip been an ideal method to change the plant's morphology and bud setting quicker? You had any experience with that particular technique? Uh, yes, uh, pretty much any time that we are talking about, you know, a flip to 12-12, getting that plant to flower, we do want to start using um, blood, uh, excuse me, bloom nutrients. Um, so if you're your supplier of nutrients, does a you know base plus veg and a base plus bloom definitely start switching to that that bloom and uh every once in a while you know we'll see people transition if you are planting into new immediate you might go a day or two of, of veg nutrients but really typically the complexity of, of having your resins set up or your injections set up to to do that may not be worth um worth it so for simplicity's sake, a lot of times we'll just go to a base plus bloom and we'll start stacking that EC for the ideal plant morphology. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for that question, Max. Appreciate you. And Mikey actually just responded to the previous question that he has found success with Athena. So I love the resource sharing. Post in the chat. Let us know what nutrients are working for you. What do you like? All right, we're going to keep it moving. We got a couple questions from Plant Alley. They asked about two things. So let me ask the first one. How to determine field capacity, field capacity specifically with peat-based mediums? What do you suggest? Yeah, so I mean, the best way to get field capacity for any media, um, I think Ramsey did a YouTube video for us on this. Uh, I, I think Seth actually recorded another one pretty recently on how to evaluate that. Pretty simple. Get a kitchen scale or a scale that has enough resolution for you to get fairly accurate measurements on the weight of substrate that you're working with. Um, make sure that that substrate is completely dry. You can either do that by obviously leaving it out in the sun for three days, five days, eight days, whatever it takes to get that stuff completely dry, or you can bake it for a few hours. Make sure that all the water weight's out. Pretty easy to test that if you're not sure the water weight's out. Just measure um, the weight of that dry substrate 
every hour when it stops going down, it's completely dry. Um, so it's gonna be your starting point. When we look at that weight, that's the weight that we know our dry um, peat in this case is gonna be. Works for any substrate, cocoa, rock wool. I've done this test many times. Um, so that's your starting weight. Now we're gonna obviously add water. Um, I like to add water in a few different sets, you know, say three or four different sets and just making sure that you're not channeling out that media. If you are getting the field capacity, make sure to sure that everything is fully saturated um, and then let it sit for you know, 30 minutes, an hour, making sure that when you do go to remeasure it, there is no runoff. Um, and I guess to, how long you leave it out is going to affect, you know, if you're in a really dry, hot environment, like don't leave it out in the sun when you're le letting that get to um, field capacity. But so basically weigh it again and subtract your original weight from your saturated weight. And the difference is the amount of water that's in there, right? And so that amount of water, one gram equals one milliliter. Um, let's divide the whole substrate size by the amount of water that we had in there. And now you've got the percentage of um, water content, volumetric water content at field capacity. So break that out, down into basically three steps. I talked too much to count. Um, measure the dry weight, measure the wet weight when there's no more runoff, and then make calculations as far as how much um, water that substrate was holding at field capacity. That is a quick and dirty explanation of field capacity, which is amazing. But y'all not need to check out the crash course that we have on our website too. We just dropped that in the chat, a little bit more detailed, but amazing. Thank you for that overview, Jason. I love that you just know this off the top of your head. So good. All right. We did it down at Cookies U. Uh, so. True. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think I was taking pictures. Um, <laughs> Plant Ali had another question. They're wondering when to cut CO2. Um, I actually don't really cut CO2 if, unless I'm really trying to optimize costs, um, simply just because the cost of the CO2 doesn't outweigh. And I guess we'd be talking it in the, in the whole cycle. Uh, I guess I made an assumption there that they're saying, hey, during ripening, when do we cut CO2? Uh, I just let it run in the daytimes, obviously, towards harvest. If they're talking about cutting CO2, on the 24-hour day period um, obviously when lights are off we want to make sure we're not injecting co2 um, when lights are on we are injecting co2 and that's pretty much the cutoff so if your lights are on co2 is on if your lights are off co2 is off um, scientific reasoning for this obviously during lights on we are looking at the plant doing photosynthesis uh, photosynthesis is using the co2 that's available if we're matching our light levels, then it's going to use a um, fairly substantial amount of the CO2 that's being supplied. Um, obviously, canvas is a carbon-based plant for providing CO2. That's the building blocks for the weight that is coming out of that plant. Uh, so when we look at photosynthesis, that's CO2 plus H2O catalyzed by light is giving us the building block sugars that the plant is going to start to use. Um, now, when we turn lights off, um, some interesting things happen. Rather than the plant photosynthesizing, it's actually respiring. And basically what that means is these um, sugars that we built during the daytime during photosynthesis are now actually getting used and processed by that plant. And so when it's respiring, that um, chemical reaction actually starts to 
release a little bit of CO2. Um, so, so those plants are using a little bit of oxygen while they're respiring at night. Uh, kind of kind of a wild process, but if our CO2 levels are too high uh, during photo period off, during nighttime, during no photosynthesis, during the time that we're respiring, then we can actually decrease how quickly that they are building plant matter, which is not good. That is not good. Amazing. Okay. Thank you for that, Plant Ali. Thank you so much for your questions. We're going to keep it moving. We're ending a little early, y'all. 10 minutes left in the show. So if you have questions, now is the time to drop them in the chat. IndieBud posted on YouTube, they're wondering what to do with strains that are growing purple stems and veg. Most of the strains work perfectly with 2.3 EC and they are all in the same bedroom, same nutrition. Thanks. Got any advice for IndieBud? Uh, probably one of three easy options there. Um, one would just be obviously check the environment uh, in that bedroom, make sure that you know, our temps are higher, our relative humidities are higher, typically shooting for a VPD around 0. 0.6, um, 0. 0.7 during veg periods. Uh, I like to be around 80 degrees mark, depending on your your light requirements, but without knowing lights, you know, around 80 degrees, uh, maybe a little bit warmer, um, take some leaf temp surfaces to know, leaf surface temps to know exactly where that temperature should be, and then humidities appropriate to get that 0.6 VPD. Um, so that would be the first look at environment. If it's too cold, you're more likely to have some of that purple in the stems. And obviously strain to strain is going to be dependent on how they react to the environments. Um, next up is also going to be strain to strain dependent, which would be uh, nutrient levels. Um, so obviously there's a chance that that strain is actually just hungrier than the other ones. And so some of that purpling could um, become down, coming down with a, a nutrient. Um, efficiency. Uh, you know, easy thing to look at is, is the pH runoff from those plants similar and are the EC of their root zone graphs representing the same trending over the EC. Um, and then the last one uh, is just, it might be what that strain does. Some strains are just going to show purpling regardless of um, conditions being absolutely ideal or not. So um, basically, you know, two of those three, you can adjust. The third one, it might actually be why that plant turns out to be a, a good seller is if it is very purple. I, I personally, I prefer some of the greener plants. And so if that genetic could uh, could be modified so it's not showing that purple, you, you might have an opportunity in the market as well. But that's definitely a business decision that, um, from my standpoint, uh, you'll have to analyze your market in order to be most effective in making that choice. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Jason. Indie Bud. Keep us posted, let us know what's going on. All right, we got a two-part question about irrigations from King Green Bees this week. So let me give you the first one here. If you could only have two P1 waterings given to you to reach full saturation and two to three P3 waterings afterwards, which substrate and size as well as emitter would you choose for optimal results? I mean, I probably wouldn't necessarily determine my media size and type by those irrigations. I would think about how much headspace do I have? What are my lighting types? Do I in a very controlled environment? So lots of variables there that I would probably put significantly ahead of those irrigation constraints. Um, for me, I would ask myself is why am I constrained to those irrigation events? Um, it's not actually bad. I mean, you could get away with doing 
doing uh, you know five irrigations a day is probably five times more than we used to be traditionally hand watering, right? Uh, so you still have pretty good control. Obviously, the things that we recommend for crop string are still going to work for that. Um, using low flow grippers is always helpful. Um, but then again, in today's age, it's not very expensive to get irrigation controllers that can basically do as many or as few irrigations that you want on any schedule. Um, now, obviously, one of the things that we do is we integrate with open sprinklers. Um, pretty cool little product that's been on the market for, I think, almost a decade now. Um, very reasonable. You can get a lot of channels for you know under 200 bucks. Um, each module and array integrates with it. So now you're only using one interface to monitor your environment, your red zone, your irrigations, and then same exact interface to start pushing irrigation schedules. You can have array update those irrigation schedules based on the um, plant life cycle. So if you need an irrigation schedule to be different each week, you can load those into Arita. And by doing harvest groups, Arita will automatically update the increased irrigation needs or the change in irrigation strategies. Um, so yeah, I, you know, if, if it is an equipment constraint, uh, I would probably just invest in um, an open sprinkler, um, integrate it with your array system. If you have an array system, if you don't, an open sprinkler interface is actually pretty reasonable. It's easy to use. Uh, if you set up a VPN connection or other ways, you can access it remotely anywhere that you have internet, which is a really nice way to to monitor your crops and make updates to irrigation if you're not always at your grow. Um, yeah, like I said, they're not not going to be one of the more expensive parts. If you're you know, making up your decision on which type of substrate because of irrigation constraints, I would just consider what are my irrigation constraints? Is, am I really making the best approach? Am I just going to be um, you know, a loss on money because uh, you know, not upgrading my irrigation equipment and maybe using a substrate too big or too small? Most likely too big if you're constrained, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So his second question was, how many minutes would you let pass after the first P1 was completed prior to starting the second P1 watering? So I guess what are some considerations King Ruby should keep in mind with regard to the scheduling of his of his shots? Sure, so if I'm in the right size media and I'm gonna irrigate with two P1s and three P2s, uh, I would probably wait for one hour after lights on. Um, irrigate, wait about 30 minutes, do my second P1 irrigation. Um, and then in order to stretch my irrigation window out to middle of the road, say six hours, eight hours, then you would do an irrigation about every two hours after that. Awesome. Thank you for that. Good luck, uh, Dr. Uwe, not doctor, I'm sorry. Uh, King Green Beast, not doctor. Um, all right, we got another question here on YouTube. Ricardo wrote in, when in two gallon cocoa pots, what's the best ideal runoff at EC and pH you'd want to see if you wanted to stack your EC in the early weeks? Not running Arroyo, but implementing crop steering techniques. What advice do we have for Ricardo? Yeah, um, yeah so obviously for, did you say pH and EC? Uh, yes, runoff EC and pH. Yeah, so you know runoff pH. Uh, usually, we want to see that pretty close to our feed pH. If we're in rock wool, we definitely want that 
Turn off pH to be as close to say five six as possible. Um, that would be our one of our ideal feed pHs for rockwool. Um, for cocoa, you know, you might be five eight, maybe six zero uh, on your feed pH, and so run off. Same thing. Let's try and keep it as close to possible. That means that our plants are eating balanced nutrition, and our substrate's not modifying the pH that um, we're feeding the plant. Uh, as far as ECs go. Let's take an idea of you know what what is our feed EC and you know for our feed EC let's say you know day one that we're doing very low runoff um, I like to have just enough runoff to check my EC and pH when I am stacking um, so we might say all right if we're in a two week stacking cycle and we're trying to let the EC rise um, maybe let's say seven points so let's say we start coming out of edge at uh you know a, a runoff of say 3.0 ec then maybe by the end of the time we're getting closer to a runoff of almost 10. um you're probably not going to see like let's say actually that's the substrate that we're going to want to see is probably you know starting to say 3.0 um in the substrate usually want to be a little bit higher than that in flower and then let's say we're shooting for a substrate um ec after irrigation about 10. Um, so you're going to probably see that runoff EC rise just a little bit more towards the end and just do the math. We're trying to stack that much over 14 days. That's the stair step of uh, EC and the runoff that we're going to see each day. Um, how effective this is going to be is going to come down to all of the parameters that we talk about. Uh, um, and then the last one obviously being um, crop stirring. So make sure everything else is in line. I, whenever I do any consulting, I, uh, I actually like to call it agronomic advising. Um, I pretty much check crop steering last. I'll look at all the environmental parameters, start to look at irrigation parameters, look at the plants, and then start talking about how well is that crop steering working. Uh, if there's much to be worried about in your environment, then you really going to struggle to start diagnosing irrigation um, if there's any issues with your uh, your irrigation or your plant life cycle then you know it's going to be really difficult to understand you know how to improve crop steering or even to crop steer at that point gotta look at the whole environment awesome yeah ricardo thank you for that question i have one last question for us here, Jason, Mikey, our good friend, posted this. I missed it earlier on YouTube. He wanted to know, do you have any experience using the reheat method of dehumidification with your AC units? Any experience with that? Um, I personally have not run uh, a facility that had the option to, to reheat. Um, you know, best things work with your HVAC guys. Um, I'm not sure exactly if, if the question was just if I had experience with it or not, or if we were trying to make some improvements. So. Mike, if you want to hit me up, I'll I pick my brain here on uh, email or phone call and see if there's something I can help you with. Always. Yeah, appreciate the question, Mikey. I know you got a direct line at Jason, so hit him up if you have any other questions. Bill Bilbo wrote here, agronomic consulting. Is that what you call it? Is that what we're calling it, Jason? I like to call it advising. That's right. Agronomic advising. All right. And with that, this episode of Agronomic Advising is coming to a close. We're ending a little earlier today, folks. Jason, thank you so much for holding it down. Also to our producer, Chris, for another great session. If you're looking for some Arroyo gear, like what I have on right now, arroyo.shop is now open for business. Head over there, get you some merch. 
Thank you all so much for joining us for this week's Arroyo Office Hours. We do this every Thursday, and the best way to get your answers from the experts is to join us live. To learn more about Arroyo, book a demo at arroyo.io. One of our experts would be happy to walk you through all the different ways the platform can improve your production, cultivation production process. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, post questions anytime in the Arroyo app, drop questions in the chat on our YouTube, send us an email to sales at arroyo.io. DM us. We are on the social, on all the socials, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. We want to hear from you. We'll send everyone in attendance a link to today's video and post it on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share while you're there. We'll see you at the next session. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroyo.io.